Live from the basement of Voodoo Sound, it's time to get your mojo working. I got my mojo working, but it just won't work on you. Take the next 40 odd minutes to get your hands on some tips and tools that will get you working at your best in both your business and your personal life. Hey everybody and welcome to another edition of the Mojo Radio Show. Nice to have you on board the bus, the big red bus we call the Mojo Radio Show. What the show is all about is finding people that we think are interesting, have something to share with us to help us get our mojo working in or out of work. I know we say it every week, but gee whiz, this week's guest is an absolute cracker, Amy Moran, author, who's going to talk about mental strength, grit, resilience, but the things that we shouldn't do. So, an interesting spin on it. Before we start the show, uh, Robbo, welcome. How's, how's things, mate? I'm a bit shattered this week. A bit shattered at the news of, um, of losing Malcolm Young. But um, yeah. besides that, yeah, it's really sad. I, as I was saying to you before the show, ACDC are the reason I became an audio engineer. They had mm. a huge influence on my life, him and his brother and their band. So, um, yeah, I'm really sort of feeling it this week. I, I don't say it a lot and, and probably because I'm not huge on entertainment news, but that one really sort of hit me in the guts, unfortunately. Well, I've been talking to a guy called Jesse Fink, who is a journalist, a very successful journalist and turned author. And I've read a couple of his books, but he's written a book called Bon, The Last Highway, which tracks the band right back to the, the very early stages of being... Well, they were a great Aussie pub rock band mm. who then went on to the world stage. And judging by the people who are sending out messages of commiseration to the band, and Malcolm in particular, paying tribute, they became one of the, the greatest rock bands in the world. Maybe we should get Jesse on the on the show just prior to Christmas time and do a uh, rocky, Christmassy ACDC gone but not forgotten lesson of rock tribute to the band. I reckon he could take the maybe out of that. Let, let me talk to Jesse. We'll see if he's around. Yeah. We'll do a special Christmas rock show because it'll be our end of year. Grab your Doseki and a couple Back. of... T- t- a couple of Tim Tams. Dosecki and Tim Tams, not sure that they mix, but hey, it's worth a try. <laughs> and we'll get a bottle of Jacob's Creek for, uh, for AP. That's what I the Mojo Radio Show. All right, before we rock into our special guest for this week on the Mojo Radio Show, I just want to say thank you to Speedy Lizard. Speedy <laughs> <You> know, Lizard. <laughs> I must say that one of the things I do love, I mean, we get a real kick out of reading our reviews on iTunes or the lovely emails and texts and messages people send us through Facebook and stuff. I mean, we don't get paid for this. We'll be doing it now for into our fifth year, 150-odd shows. We get nothing out of it except a couple of cartons of free beer. <laughs> and uh, every now and then we get some free coffee from Pete Harrison over there at Fisher of a Roasters. But that being said, one thing I do get a kick out of is the names that our yeah. listeners put onto their iTunes reviews. Here's the example. November 15, Speedy Lizard. <laughs> right before that, Primo Excelente. Right before that, Blue Halifax 6. I just love the names we get of people that have come through. Elo Asti. I mean, Yo Teach. 2795. It's just the best. Uh, so it brings a smile to our face. It gets the mojo working here in the studio. We Indeed. appreciate it, let alone what you write and giving us a review. But um, you know what, folks? If you enjoy the show and you, like us, are getting loads of takeaways, loads of gold that you can put into your own world, in and out of work, and or, as importantly, be of service to others and bring the gold to them, just do us a favour. Get online. Leave a one-line review, and it's not about anything else. There's no money in it for us. It's just, it's fun, it helps us, it keeps the show going, and that basically is our rocket fuel. But having said that, I do have uh, maybe half a dozen bottles left, probably not even that. Yeah, probably half a dozen bottles left of the Rocktober rocket fuel, which was our reward for anybody who left us a review during the month of October, which we call Rocktober. So if you'd like a bottle, uh, I've got a couple left here. I'm very happy to send them out. Speedy Lizard and Primo Excelente Blue Halifax 6, it's on its way to you, but I just need an address to send it to, guys. So go to the website, send us an email, tell us your address. We'll pack it up at our expense. And I got an email recently from Mitch, long-time listener, first-time writer, who said the Rocktober rocket fuel, in his words, were 
It's bloody hot. The Mojo <laughs> Radio Show. Our guest this week wrote an interesting book, and what I find most interesting is the title, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Now, Amy Morin wrote the book. There's a very successful TEDx talk on the interwebs, which has had in excess of 5 million views. And that talk and this interview is talking about the secrets to becoming mentally strong through the stuff that you don't do, the stuff you take out. We often talk about Bruce Lee and talking about elimination. It's not putting more stuff in. Quite often it's the stuff you take out. Amy's backstory, which we will cover in this interview, is extraordinary with what this lady had to go through in her early years. And we like people who take their own learnings and put the rubber on the road and apply it to themselves. And Amy, being a psychoanalyst, had to take all of her learnings to deal with her own grief, tragedy, the stuff that went on in her world. And from that came this book. She writes for a number of top magazines around the world, uh, very successful. She's been on lots of podcasts because she's so sought after. We're absolutely delighted to have you here. Amy, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Well, thanks for having me. Let me take you back a bit to start us off, Amy. You were 23 years old. you just finished college. You were married, a psychotherapist, I understand. You are feeling like life is sorted. You've said life was good. But then you get a phone call from your sister and everything seemed to start to change with a pretty dramatic chain of events. Can you take us back to that time and what happened after that phone call? Sure. So, uh, yeah, it was just a, a regular Sunday when I got a phone call from my sister that our mother was rushed to the hospital and I couldn't quite figure out what she was trying to tell me, but... Um, just my husband and I jumped in the car and went to the hospital. And when we got there, doctors explained to us that she'd had a brain aneurysm. And uh, the next day she passed away. And my mother and I had been really close. And so the thought of losing her and not having her in my life anymore was really painful. And as a therapist, I really thought my purpose was to teach other people about mental strength. And it was really the first time I realized yeah, I actually need to need so much mental strength for myself. And that's what really launched my journey into figuring out how do you become mentally strong? What are the the strategies and exercises that I could use so that I could deal with the pain in my life? And I want to sort of track through that, but I think just to put everybody in the picture, it, it kind of didn't stop there, did it? Because not long after that, or a few years after that, then there was the next dramatic event. And then soon after that, another dramatic event. I mean, you've had, looking back through that period, there was a whole calendar of stuff that just mounted up that really tested your mental vigor, wasn't it? Yeah, my 20s were not kind to me, I have to say. So on the three, it was the three-year anniversary to the day of when my mother passed away that my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. And I, you know, to be a widow at age 26 is just a really strange place to be. And I didn't have my mom to help me through it either. And I just had to figure out how do you go through that kind of pain in life? How do you get through it so that someday you can still be happy or that you can still enjoy life and you can still reach your greatest potential? And I worked really hard at studying things, figuring things out the best I could. Uh, I took my the knowledge that I had as a therapist and said, okay, now how do I apply this to my own life? Because I know that knowing it and doing it were two very different things. And it took a long time before I felt like life was starting to get back um, to a new sense of normal. It never went back to the way it was, obviously, but I was able to sort of say, okay, here's here's what my new life could look like and here's how it could be. And a few years down the road, I had gotten remarried and um, my husband and I decided to to sell the house that my first husband and I had bought together. And we said, let's go buy a new house, move to a new place, and we'll sort of get this fresh start in life. And almost as quickly as we did that, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I thought, oh, you know, this isn't fair. Why do I have to keep losing loved ones? I don't want to go through this again. And when I had lost my mother and my first husband, it was so sudden and unexpected and there was no preparation. And this time it was different because I knew that my father-in-law had maybe a couple of months, but probably only a couple of weeks left. And so it was this sense of overwhelming dread. And during that time, 
I noticed I was starting to feel sorry for myself. I'm thinking, you know, I shouldn't have to deal with this. This isn't fair. And so I sat down and I wrote a list of all the things that mentally strong people don't do. And it was a letter to myself to remind myself of all the things that would rob me of mental strength. And when I was done, I had a list of 13 things. And I published it online because I thought, well, if this is helpful to me, maybe it could help somebody else. And never imagined it would go viral, but it was read by 50 million people. And it changed the entire course of my career because it really showed me that, okay, uh, other people are interested in mental strength and they want to know as well, how do you go through tough times? How do you become resilient? How do you do these things give up these bad habits that we all do sometimes that are holding us back. It's interesting, Amy. I've been curious, looking at a lot of the work you've done, your TEDx speech, hearing interviews with you. And when this all started, you were a young therapist who'd left college. And then you'd said that you believed your purpose in life was to help others, but suddenly you realized that your primary patient was yourself. How much, how much of what you had learnt at college were you able to apply to yourself? I mean, you were somebody who was a therapist, but now you actually needed a therapist. Right. Looking back on the 13 things and in hindsight of what you learned in college, where did those two things meet? Well, you know, I think the biggest thing I learned in college was as a clinical social worker, we're taught to build on people's skills and you meet meet your client where you're at and you build on their strengths. So when they come into your office, you say, these are the things you're doing well. How do we keep doing those things? And that's important. And I, I fully believe that that's great. But then somewhere along the lines, it occurred to me that I was doing people a disservice if I didn't then point out, hey, you have these one or two bad habits that are keeping you stuck. And if we don't talk about those things, then all those good habits are aren't going to be as effective. It was sort of like, I thought, you know, if I was trying to lose weight and I went to see a, a nutritionist and the nutritionist said, great, eat more vegetables. And I went home and ate more vegetables that I wouldn't lose weight. The nutritionist should also tell me, quit eating so much junk food. And so my own journey taught me about that, that, okay, that's great that I should build on my strengths, but I also need to, to be aware of the bad habits that I have in my life and, and that it's okay to point those out and to say, okay, I'm going to give up these certain things because then all the other things I do will help propel me forward. But I, otherwise I felt like I was in a hamster wheel that 25 good habits, but only two bad habits. And I just wasn't getting anywhere. It's an interesting turn, isn't it? Because even the title of the book goes in the face of what we're taught, even as parents, that we should talk in the positive and not frame things in the negative. And I just want to sort of elaborate there for a second and just get you to explain to us that I've heard you say that even a couple of don'ts or a couple of negatives can undo a whole bunch of positives. So we could be doing a whole bunch of really good things, but then we don't consider just one or two things that we shouldn't be doing can come on, can make all that come unstuck. Just talk me through your, your thoughts of what you're finding through. And I think what I like about this interview is it's your own experience up against and with science and learnings and the history of psychotherapy and being a therapist and where those two things meet. Talk us through how the things you just said that the things we, we shouldn't do can undo the stuff that we are doing that's good. So, for example, often when we talk about, okay, you're going through a rough time in life, let's make sure that you connect with other people because human connections are really important. So maybe you're going to get social support from your friends and your family, and that's a healthy habit. But at the same time, let's say you also feel sorry for yourself. So then when you socialize with your friends and family, you're going to be talking about, this isn't fair, my life is awful, it's horrible. And those people, it's going to affect your relationships. It will damage your relationships. You're not actually going to be getting support for becoming healthier. They're going to end up probably supporting you in your misery. And so I think for people to know, okay, if I'm going to get social support, I have to do it in a healthy way. If I'm hosting a pity party and all I do is invite other people to attend my party, I'm not actually making healthy social connections. So that's just one example, I think, of times when we just need to be aware of how we're doing these things and how, how it, because as a therapist, I would see that often. People would come into my office and they'd say, I'm going to change my life and I'm ready to make these changes. 
But then rather than wanting to make changes, every week they'd want to come in and tell me all the bad things that happened to them over the past seven days. And they just really wanted me to reinforce to them that that was terrible and awful, but they didn't want to do anything about it. And that really made me realize how self-pity keeps us stuck. And that, that came to you through your own pity party, wasn't it? I mean, as a if you go back, I mean, you had every right to, to feel like the world was against you with losing your mum, husband Lincoln at the time, then your father-in-law. It was just one thing after another. Was it during that time where you sat in your own pity party and these things started to come to you? Is that, is that kind of how it all unfolded for you? Yeah, definitely. I guess the when I really realized, um, you know, at some point I realized that I could I could sit home and I could be sad um, and that that was healthy. It was okay to be sad, but that if I decide to sit home and say, this isn't fair, my life is awful, and I start exaggerating how bad my life is, I'm only going to make it worse. And one of the things that I think was instrumental in helping me come out of that was when we were facing what would have been the first birthday that Lincoln had after he passed away. He would have been turning 27. And I thought, what am I going to do? I don't want to go to work that day because it'll be a hard day. But on the other hand, I don't want to just sit at home and stare at the walls because I'm going to feel worse. And so I had approached my mother-in-law and I said, what are you thinking? What are you going to do on that day? And she said, what do you think about skydiving? <laughs> and Not? I thought, huh. And so here's this Right. Here's this woman in her 50s and she she was ready to jump out of a plane. And I thought, all right, let's do it. And so then that became this family tradition. And to this day, we still do it on his birthday. We all get together and do something kind of crazy. We've been shark diving and we um, zip line or we go hang gliding. But we do something that sort of reminds us that we're still alive and we're grateful that we had Lincoln in our lives for those years. And while we still miss him, we want to honor his life and honor his memory rather than just sitting at home and sulking and, and hosting a pity party. That's so nice. You, I want to talk about the pain part just for a second because, I don't know, I just get this feeling that there's a lot of people in the world and I'm sure with the work you're doing now and the exposure you're getting to people through your books and your speaking and your interviews there just seems to be a lot of people sitting with pain. And you've talked about the fact that it's okay to sit with pain. It, it, that, it sounds uncomfortable for a lot of people, but it is part of your message. Can you just sort of talk us through what you mean by that? Sure. I think we're, our nature is usually to avoid pain or escape it as best that we can because it's uncomfortable and we don't like it. But really you have to go through it sometimes and you don't want to stay stuck there. You don't want to 20 years later still be um, experiencing so much pain that you're immobilized. But I find that so many people, and I had this tendency myself is you just want to escape reality. So we get caught up, you know, binge watching TV or you just want to stay as busy as you can. So you don't ever have to deal with loneliness or we don't want to deal with um, our, our sadness. And, you know, a lot of people will say, well, time heals everything. Well, if I learned anything, it was that time doesn't heal anything. It's what you do with your time that matters. And just like you have to take care of your physical wounds, you have to take care of your emotional wounds. And that means sometimes sitting with your pain and saying, okay, this is terrible and awful and I'm uncomfortable, but I can stand it. And when I find when people sort of build this confidence so they know that being uncomfortable isn't the worst thing in the world, then they start to heal. But it's so tempting sometimes to spend your entire life just running from anything that's uncomfortable. And then when we do that, we never actually heal from it. And you don't go through some challenges that could help you to turn your struggles into strength. You just really have to say, okay, I can I can handle this. I can tolerate it. But it's tough to do. And in the beginning, you probably aren't going to believe that you can do it or you think, I just can't let myself be sad. Um, I meet people who will say, I can't cry because I'm afraid I'll never stop crying and, you know, I don't fault anybody for that. I think most of us weren't taught a lot of coping skills. How do you cope with sadness? How do you deal with it in a healthy way? And and other people are uncomfortable with us being sad. Um, you know, your friends and family, maybe they want to cheer you up or they 
um, they just don't want to sit with you when you're sad. Because again, as a society, I think we're often uncomfortable with with those kinds of emotions. So you make jokes or you take somebody out to dinner who's having a bad day because you think I'm going to cheer you up rather than just sit, sitting with somebody and saying, I'm going to be by your side, even though you're, you're having a tough time. I'm not going to try to force you to be happy. One of the words that I heard you mention in the TEDx speech was people are feeling stuck and people get stuck and don't know how to get unstuck. And I don't know, we, we, we interviewed Michael Gervais, um, the sports psychologist, not long ago, and we talked through this this part of the challenges of facing up to it. And he he said the first step is to embrace it. So when you are stuck or you're feeling sad, to embrace it and lean into it. And then he talked about going through that period and knowing that it's in those times that we can learn about ourselves and find out who our true selves are. Is it your belief through the work you're doing as a therapy and especially the, with what you have been through and the people you've spoken to that we can actually take we can actually take positives from suffering? Definitely. I think um, you can learn a lot from pain and suffering and learn a lot about yourself and the beliefs that you hold and your abilities, your talents. Um, I often talk to people about figuring out when is your when are your emotions a friend versus when they're an enemy? So for example, sadness could be your friend because it's helping you grieve something that you've lost and it's helping you honor that. It becomes an enemy when, say, sadness gets in the way of you being able to live a, a full and rich life because you sit at home on the couch just being sad and it turns into self-pity. Or anger can be a good thing because it can help you create change in the world. If you see something that you are a social injustice and you say, I, I, I don't want that to happen anymore, I'm going to go out and change that, that's a good thing. Anger becomes a problem when you blow up at people and you lose your, lose your job or you damage relationships. So I think it's just really important for people to say neg- emotions aren't either negative or positive. Sometimes they can be helpful and sometimes not so much, but it, it really depends and to, to look at, is this helping me or hurting me right now? Uh, I suspect there's people listening to this going, yep, I completely buy into it, but oh, that sounds hard. And why bother? The place is dark. Look what's happening in politics. Look at the family I've got to deal with. Look at my circumstances. Look at my boss. Why bother? That imposter syndrome, I know it's not a clinical thing, but it's kind of a real thing, isn't it? Can you just talk through how you help your patients, your clients work through that or people who talk to you with that sort of why bother, it always happens to me thing. How do we, in your mind, how do we deal with this imposter syndrome? I think sometimes it's a matter of asking yourself, when you have those sort of exaggerated beliefs that it's all doom and gloom, ask yourself, well, what benefit do I get out of holding on to this? And it might be that that makes a great excuse now to change if you think it's not going to work. So then you don't have to put in any of the work because you think there's no use anyway. And then to look for examples of times that that wasn't true. So maybe you think, well, there's no sense in trying because nothing ever works out for me. Well, I challenge you to find one time where something has worked out for you. And sometimes it's about saying, okay, I hold this belief 100% true 100% of the time. But maybe if you examine it a little bit closer and you really look for the evidence, maybe you say, well, this is only 80% true. And and then I think it's important to just challenge the the beliefs. Your brain lies to you sometimes and your brain can underestimate you. So when your brain says you can't do this, say, oh, I'm going to try it anyway. And be willing to prove yourself wrong. And I find when people start to make just small little changes in their life and they have just a little bit of success, then they say, okay, I'm going to change something else or I'm going to go a little bit further. And so I think the key is to start small. You don't have to change your entire life tomorrow, but you can probably do one thing a little bit better tomorrow than you did today. And when you identify just those really small steps you can take, it gets the momentum going and then you can can create much bigger changes in your life because you'll be more excited, you'll be more confident, you'll recognize, okay, I can do this, but you just start small and it's okay to start really small. Um, You just have to make sure you are taking a step no matter how small it is. Do you still have that voice of doubt, Amy? I mean, people would look at you and go, successful, best-selling author. People want to interview you like us. You're beautifully presented. You've got a TED Talk, which as of this morning had five point something million views you know, this girl's been through some tough times, but she's got it sorted. She's on the way. I mean, life's good for this girl. Do you still have that voice of doubt? I am. You know, if you put me in a room full of people, I'm usually the quietest person in the back of the room. I'm not this outgoing person who, um, who, who would ever think I would give a speech to millions of people. I mean, I probably 
if you would have asked me 10 years ago to give a speech to five people, I would have said no. So uh, I think, uh, you know, yeah, even for myself, and I just, all of this, you know, I never even asked to write a book. A literary agent called me and said, you should write a book. I didn't think that this was possible, but it's just been reinforcing to me that, yes, I still have self-doubt, but yes, you just go for it anyway. And, and um you don't know what you can do until you try. People at home are sitting listening to this. So they're on their way to work. They're hearing this conversation. They are driving their car. They're hearing the conversation. One thing I'd like to hear your thoughts on as a therapist and someone who you had to embrace this. I mean, you had to, you had to put rubber on the road. You couldn't just write the book and not apply it to your own world after all you'd been through. Tell me, how do we win the battle against doubt and laziness where people go, yeah, no, I should, I could. How do we, how do we win that battle? And in the war of art, Stephen Pressfield, the author, called it resistance. And I think it's such a great term. It's the resistance that stops us from doing it. In your mind, how, how do we take the step of action to actually do something with all this great stuff you're sharing? Well, I think the first one is to just say, just because I think it doesn't make it true. You have something like 65,000 to 70,000 thoughts a day. A lot of them are going to be negative. A lot of them are filled with self-doubt. And so for some people, it's just coming up with a mantra that says, challenge accepted. So when your brain says you're going to embarrass yourself, say, oh yeah, here goes nothing and try it anyway. Um, my personal saying is make it happen. I have a tendency where I could say, oh, I hope that works out. And then I <laughs> remind myself, no, make it happen. If you want something to happen, just go do it. Don't wait for other people or don't passively hope that it does. Go do it. Um, and I think one of the other big pieces is to say to yourself, well, what would I say to my friend who had this problem? So we tend to be so so much kinder to other people than we are ourselves. So if you are about to walk into a job interview and you're thinking you're going to mess up, this is going to be terrible, take a deep breath and say, no, what would I say to my friend who said that to me? Well, you probably would say something like, you're going to do great. I know you can do well. I, I believe in you. And if we just spoke to ourselves more like that, it would really give us that boost of confidence that we need. So I think just reminding yourself when you catch yourself, when you have self-doubt and a lot of negative thoughts and just ask yourself, what would I say to my friend? And then give yourself that same advice. That's beautiful. I tell you what, I love that challenge accepted. That's got fire in the belly. Yes. <laughs> fire in the hole. That is really uh, that is really good because you are challenging. You're actually almost making the resistance into a thing and saying, right, Step back. Here we go. Let's get after this. That's, uh, um, Amy, tell me something. Number two on the list of 13 things is mentally strong people don't give away their power. Just talk me through what that means and give me an example of how typically we give our power away to others. That one is really about saying I'm in control of how I think, feel, and behave. So an example of giving away your power is when you say, my my mother makes me feel bad about myself because she criticizes me all the time. Or when you say my boss drives me crazy because she's always complaining about my work. So it's really about saying, okay, how do I make sure that no matter what goes on around me, I'm still in control. I'm in control of how I spend my day, who I spend it with, how I think, how I feel. And it's really about eliminating a lot of the things we have in our vocabulary. So when you say somebody else makes you do something, or even when you say, I have to do something, I, I have to go to my neighbor's house tonight to help with something. Well, you don't have to, that's a choice. And taking back your power is just recognizing all the choices that you have in life. The other one that I really like, and I think this is a challenge for a lot of us, is being in still, stillness and silence. And you've said that one of the laws is that mentally strong people can tolerate being alone and they don't fear silence. It just seems that we are always needing something either around us in terms of noise or distractions or visuals. And it's just so damn easy to do it today. Just talk me through the power in that. I think our, our world is just so full of noise and it's so tempting to have your smartphone in your hand all the time or to always be talking to, to people on social media and or to always have the radio on or you have the TV on for background noise. And it's difficult sometimes to, to take a break from all that and just be alone with your thoughts. And 
for a lot of people, that feels really scary. And I, I worked with a lot of people over the years who sleep with the TV on because even at night, they just can't stand it to be quiet. And But I think because we run so much from our thoughts, or, it makes us so that we're uncomfortable in our own skin. You have to become comfortable with who you are, how your brain works, and really be willing to learn more about yourself and how do you get better. But you can't do that unless you're willing to, to allow there to be some silence sometimes. The... The chain of events didn't really stop with where we are so far in your story because something else that you have spoken about, which I think there's some valuable learnings out of, was there was a fire at your dad's place. And as you told the story, apparently you lost all your mum's stuff. It went up in flames. How did it feel for you to lose all those memories and what did what did you take from that that could have been a positive? Yeah, so it was about two and a half weeks after my mother passed away, and uh, there was an electrical fire at my dad's house. And we didn't lose everything, but everything was at least damaged in some way, shape, or form. We had to uh, her clothing was upstairs in a closet, and it still existed, but it the smoke smell was terrible and everything had to at least be sent off to the to the dry cleaner and everything in the house had to be taken out and cleaned because there was soot and smoke damage to everything and or water damage and that was difficult because i it was so <coughs> tempting to just cling to everything that was in her house and trying to make it the same as as it was when she was alive and knowing that those things weren't her and that even though I could take some of her possessions that they were never going to be the same, like her clothes didn't smell like her or uh, the books that she was reading on her nightstand. I wanted to know what order she had read them in or which one she hadn't read yet, but I didn't know because the professional cleaners had come in and moved everything after the fire department had left, of course. But um, so many people had been through the house and changed things around and, you know, we had to replace certain things in the house. My dad had to get new carpets and that kind of a thing. So it was different that even the house was never the same. And and then when my husband passed away, I thought, I don't want anything like that to happen. And my tendency was to try to keep our house like a, a museum. You know, I wanted his jacket to stay hung where he last left it. And I wanted his, um, the last, you know, scrap paper that he'd written on with his name on it. I wanted that to stay in exactly the same place. And because I felt like those things were memories and those are the things that were going to help me stay connected to him. And again, I had to just remember that those things weren't him and that, I wasn't going to damage my memories if I got rid of things. Those were just things. And that, but it was difficult. It was painful because I, it was like the past is where, where my mother and where my husband lived and letting go of the past was difficult. It was scary to move forward. And I had to give myself permission to do that. Gee, that must've been hard, Amy. I'm, I'm trying to imagine what that would have been like at that time, because you're really in a mental fight with yourself, aren't you? Because you're almost saying, if I do move this on, it's being disrespectful. And I suspect in a deeper level, it's even people laughing at a time when they should expected or should be sad or in grief to laughing as paying disrespect to what's happened. How, how do we manage to go through that? Because I can imagine that happening. And I don't, I don't know whether I'd want to go back to the same house, whether you do it by honouring it. It's just such a, a head spin to work out, well, how do we know what the right thing to do is? And, and that was it. You know, there's a whole uh, feelings of guilt or feelings of anger or feelings of sadness. I mean, all sorts of emotions about so many objects. Uh, it's just a really interesting thing. And so I had to decide, you know, am I going to sell this? Am I going to get rid of it? Do I give it to somebody? Is there somebody else in the family who wants this item? Um and yeah, and there were times too that I'd be with friends and maybe my friends would laugh and I'd think, you know, we're supposed to be grieving or we're supposed to be sad. How can this be a, a time where people are laughing or I'd catch myself having a good day and then I'd feel guilty for having a good day. And I think sometimes we think that um, the sadder we are and the longer period that we seem to be sad, that it is proportionate to the amount of love that we had for that person. Mm. And I, and it's something I've worked with clients over the years on recognizing that that's not true. You can you can be happy and you don't have to 
display your grief for 25 years if you really loved somebody versus only five years if you kind of love somebody that just isn't isn't doesn't work like that but again knowing it and doing it are two very different things and so it was very difficult to figure out how do you let go of some physical objects but how do you also let go of those feelings of guilt or those feelings of what you should be doing to to honor somebody's memory it was um I wrestled with a lot of things over the years, for sure. But there's something cathartic about the other side of that too, though, isn't it? After you have after you actually do go through that process. Because I, I, a good mate of mine died when I was in year 10 at school. And I'm not saying that I understand what his parents went through or ever could, even as a parent now. But they asked me to clean out his locker at school. They gave me a bag and said, look, you know, we need the locker cleaned out. And I remember it took me like two or three days to actually get around to taking the key out of my pocket, putting it in the lock and emptying all his personal stuff out of his locker. And I, I, I hated even doing it at the time, but I remember after doing it, this sort of sense of, and I, I wouldn't say closure, but this sort of sense of moving on, like, okay, you know, it's tragic and stuff, but let, let's sort of keep going. Did, did you find that afterwards or is that just sort of a per, more of a personal thing? I, yeah, I did find that. You know, I kept, um, say, Lincoln's clothes, for example. He had his own closet, and I kept his all of his clothes in the closet for for several years. And um, because I thought, you know, I don't I don't want to move any of it. I'll just keep it exactly the way that it was. But then when I finally got to the point where I, I found some some family members wanted a few things, but for the most part, we decided to donate them. It felt okay to do that, but mm. I had to wait until I was ready. And I mm. think that that's the key is, you know, I was fortunate that I was able to still live in our house. After he passed away, I had run into a, um, somebody else who had lost her husband and she had to move. She couldn't afford to continue living where they were. And she was forced to do all of that way before she was ready. It was within a couple of months of when her husband passed away. And it just served as a good reminder to me that my life wasn't that bad and how fortunate I was that I didn't have to get rid of things or I didn't have to move things around right away. I was able to do it according to my own timeline. Is it a case of, if I just take you back a sec, is it a case of almost what we spoke about earlier in the in the show is that mentally strong people don't give away their power. Because hearing you talk about the guilt that can come from it, I suspect it's internal guilt about your own processing of whether you smile or whether you give something away or move something on. And or I suspect it's also a perception of what others will think that you're not grieving sufficiently for a sufficient long time to, to know that you are truly hurting. Is that the case, do you think, Amy, where it's kind of you've, you've almost got to, in your own mind, make a decision at some point about what the right thing is for you and then stand by it in terms of yourself and in the mind of others? Yes. I think, you know, early on especially, I would get comments from people like, you don't look like a widow. And I don't know what they expected a widow to look like. <laughs> but I would then be like, well, you know, am I supposed to be dressed in, in all black? Am I supposed to be crying at the grocery mm. store every time I go shopping? Like, I, I don't know. And so then I would think, well, what am I doing that makes people, you know, think I'm not? Or do I look too happy? And, and yes, at some point I had to figure out most, I don't know of anybody else that's 26 and has been widowed. And while lots of people had lots of advice for me or ideas or suggestions, I just figured out I had to take this all with a grain of salt um, and figure out what do I what do I need to do. And while people's comments I think were very well meaning and they had great intentions, I knew that nobody'd walked a mile in my shoes. I just needed to figure out, okay, given my circumstances and my experience, what do I need to do? And and that I just tried to keep a positive attitude about people whose comments were maybe a little more hurtful sometimes. I don't think that anybody meant any ill will. I think they just came across wrong sometimes. Um, so I tried to give everybody the benefit of the doubt, but ultimately say thank you and would go on with whatever I was going to do in my own way. One of the other points you talk about is mentally strong people don't fear taking a calculated risk. I think what I'd like to understand is how do they calculate a true risk? How do they know how do they know which risk to take knowing that with that risk growth success, achievement could be on the other side. Is there a process for calculating what risk is between being 
just having a crack and giving it no thought and it's really just careless versus being truly calculated. Where's that, where's that area in the middle there? I think the biggest key to calculating risk is just to be aware of your emotions. We know that when we're excited, we tend to overlook the extent of risk that we face. But when we're nervous about something, we tend to exaggerate it or overestimate um, how bad it's going to be. And so just by saying, okay, how am I feeling? And then to realize too that your emotions from one area of your life spill over into other areas. So if you're nervous about something that happens that's going on in your personal life, you tend to play it safer at the office because you, you just don't want to take on any more risk. So I think that's the easiest thing to do is to just say, how am I feeling? You could just label your emotion, put a name to it, and then ask yourself, how might this be affecting my outlook? Um, and if we just did that one thing, I think we tend to make a lot better decisions. You've obviously been exposed to a lot of people who have been very successful, and, and I suspect you've met a lot of people who are mentally strong. With, if you look at a generalizing mentally strong high achievers, how do they? How do you find they quantify their own self worth? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I would say a lot of it is by um, by the difference that they're making in the world, and that's not to say that you have to have a, a million Facebook followers to have a huge impact. I've met plenty of people who will say, "Well." Um, my job is to, to make people happy. So I, I cut people's hair and then they feel beautiful and I feel like I'm making a contribution to the world. So I think um, just knowing, well, how can I contribute? And you don't have to go out and raise millions of dollars or do anything heroic. Sometimes it's just about leaving a small mark on the people that you come in contact with every day. I heard you say in an interview that it's very powerful when you are honest with yourself or can say to others, you know what, I don't have this sorted. I don't have this together. When you think about your own journey, where you are today, Amy, what's something that you know you don't have sorted that you're, you're personally working on? Mm, that's another good question because um, there are lots of things I'm working on. I always remind people I, I I come by this list honestly. I didn't write this list because I mastered it. I, I wrote this list because I I struggled with it. And so I guess it depends on the day. I have times where I, I just, if I fail, I want to give up. Or when I make a mistake, I make the same mistake again. And so um, I think all of, all of the 13 things are still things that I just, I'm much more conscious of now that I've been writing and talking about it for years um, that I can remind myself, okay, don't do that. But um, if I had to pick one thing, I guess I'd still be saying I still work on my self-talk. I still uh, was the shy kid in the who never raised their hand. So now to be in a position where people are proving to me, hey, we want to hear what you have to say, I, it's a totally different world for me. So I still have to remind myself it's okay to speak up. Yeah. The book was published in 2015. So approaching a couple of years, the book has been in the marketplace. And I am imagining there have been hundreds upon thousands of people who've walked up to you and spoken to you about their own story, their own experience Let's say that we are going to republish the book on the 1st of January 2018 and the publisher has said, 13 is not a great number, I want to make it 14. If you were to put a 14th thing in now, so it's 14 things, what would be the extra thing you would include now based on the stories you've heard and your experience of the last two years? You know, I don't know. I don't know that I've never said, oh, I wish I'd put that on my list. So I don't have one thing that I would add, thankfully, because I think it would it would annoy me if I did, if I thought, oh, I should have added that. Mm. Um, and I've been fortunate we were able to write the second book about the 13 things mentally strong parents don't do, and I'm writing a third book now, so I think I get to sort of incorporate the some of the things maybe that I didn't make clear in the first <laughs> book in these other books, which is probably quite helpful, but I don't know. I don't know that I would have just one 14th thing if I had to add something. Stay away okay. from the second Tim Tam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> something I heard on your TEDx speech that you said in your dialogue that I think is really powerful and something we need to consider, you said even a quick five-minute scroll through Facebook can really be hurting us. 
Can you elaborate on that for me? Sure. Study after study will show that social media is bad for our mental health. And it's one of the few things I think in life that we is bad for us. Um, and yet we, we don't realize it. If you ask anybody, did social media help you? So many people say yes. Um, and we keep going back for more. But studies will show, for instance, that uh, envying people on Facebook leads to depression. And they found a couple of different things that tend to cause the most envy. One is vacation photos. When you look at your friends who are going on all these fun vacations, your uh, the likelihood that you envy that person goes up and you actually feel worse about your own life. And the second one is when people uh, wish your friends a happy birthday. We tend to look at how many people said happy birthday to one of your friends and then we suddenly think they're more popular and more well-liked than I am. Mm. And again, makes your life worse. There's also been studies about Instagram that we tend to compare ourselves to other people even more when it comes to Instagram. And we look at these photos and think that person is better looking, happier, wealthier, has a better life than I do. And I think that's for social media is just one of those breeding grounds where it just becomes so easy to catch those snapshots of other people's highlights and think, that that person's life is better than ours. And then we start to downplay our, our, the good things that we have in our own life. And, um, and yeah, it can cause lots of mental health issues ranging from depression to anxiety. And I don't see social media going away anytime soon now. So I think it's important for people to be aware of their social media use and to recognize, is this possibly having an impact on my mental health? How so? And how do I turn it off? And even if it just means having a few hours a week that you shut your phone off or a couple of days out of the month where you just don't go on social media, it could improve your mental health. What stops us from balancing that? What what's, what's goes on in our head that stops us from looking at someone's holiday photos and going, gee, I'm glad for them. They're having a great time. I know Paul's been working his ass off for the last 12 months and deserves a break. It's great that he's in Fiji. What, what, what goes on in our head there? I, I think it's just a matter of, when we look at somebody else's snapshots, we automatically start to think, well, what about my life? When's the last time I did that? Or that person is happier. And we know the inside scoop. We know, okay, in my own life, I'm happy sometimes, or I have these five good things, but we also have those things that we don't put on social media, the things we don't want other people to know, or the, the sad things or the tough parts of our life. And so, because we know that we don't consciously, we aren't aware that, okay, I'm just comparing this person's, the best part of this person's life to all of my life, or um, I'm looking at somebody else's outsides and comparing it to my insides. And it's not a fair comparison, but we don't remind ourselves of that, I think. When I look at the success of your personal brand and the book, Amy, and it's been two years on, and your material's terrific, You've got an amazing backstory. The way you piece it all together is really profound and very powerful. When you look back on the last two years and what was written as a self-diagnosis message to yourself, which became a blog, which essentially became a book, which is now in a way a kind of a movement with five million plus people seeing you live on stage and so on. In your mind, how do you reconcile the success of all this? I mean, how do you how do you see a topic around mental toughness, mental resilience and grit? Are we craving that? Are we lacking it? And we're looking for the answer to why we don't have I it. I think so. I think so many people just said, you know, okay, my life isn't going the way I want it to be. I want to know how do I do these things? And we spend so much time talking about physical health and physical exercise and how important it is to to build physical strength. And yet nobody was talking about mental strength. And I think that that just sort of gave people an idea of, okay, um, this is possible. I just need a roadmap of how to get there. And so um, I'm thrilled that I'm starting some of those conversations and helping people realize that you aren't born mentally weak or mentally strong, but you all have the opportunity to build mental strength and everyone can do it. There's always room for improvement and here's some ideas and this is what worked for me. Yes, we've, we've been following this journey of this mental strength for a little while now and 
And we always get a great reaction from our listeners. And we started this journey with Carolyn Adams Miller, who we met, oh gee, in one of our, I think our first year on the air. And Carolyn released a book only this year called Getting Grit and had studied with Angela Duckworth and we'd been to that stuff. And then we'd had a couple of Navy SEALs on and I've been, I guess, interested in Navy SEALs for a few years and there's more and more prevalence of stories and exposure and movies and people are really now embracing it and the cloak has been kind of taken off the Navy SEAL thing. So I asked Carolyn, being an expert in grit, I had this theory is that we are looking to the SEALs to find that secret source because we're lacking it in our own lives, in our own family, particularly with our children. And was it because with a SEAL everything's on the line and it is true brotherhood and true resilience and grit and we're looking for the secret source? And I just feel as though today that with what you're doing, it makes it very accessible for all of us and particularly parents and families. Do you think that we are in a place where we are becoming a little mentally weak? Well, I think we live in a world where things are fairly easy. You know, you don't have to go down to the river to wash your clothes anymore. We have uh, washers and dryers. Or we live in a world where you don't have to even go shopping. You can order things online. But because all of those things are easy, I think we don't have everyday challenges in a lot of different ways. We we still have challenges like you have to deal with traffic and we have different kinds of headaches in life. But I think we're so used to, to instant gratification and we're used to uh, things just being easy for us and, and that we haven't had the right kinds of challenges. And so I think people are really looking for, okay, well, how do I do these things in life? My life is is easy enough that I can go to work, but then I can come home and watch TV all night and I don't have to worry about too many things. And because of that, maybe I don't take care of my health or I'm not taking care of my relationships or there's just so many distractions and tempting things in life that I'm not taking care of myself. And because of that, it's easy to to do that. We just don't do the things that we need to do to become our best selves. It's hard to stay motivated. Um, And so I think people are looking for, okay, well, am I really reaching my greatest potential when I'm 75 years old? Am I going to think, wow, I've been doing good work or are there things I'm going to miss out on or things that I'm going to regret not doing? So I'm I'm thrilled people are starting to ask those questions. We interviewed a guy who shall go by the name of Z because I can't pronounce his name, but he was from Europe and he was an expert in time and efficiency and productivity. And one of the things that Z dropped on the show was the word, he said, the, 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 the important thing was making things repeatable. And I already took that word away because I think that's one of the challenges today because in my mind, motivation is not your friend because it goes away. You watch a great video, you read a great book, you're pumped up for a week, a day, even an hour, 10 minutes today, and then suddenly it's gone and you're back in the hole. In your mind, I love the 13 suggestions you have, the book, the way you present it. I love the resonance behind it. How do we make it repeatable, Amy? What's the trick to not just hearing it, seeing it, watching it, but have it be part of our being? I think just like it's important to incorporate physical exercise into your daily life to just incorporate mental exercise in your daily life. And there's exercises you can do. And the more that you keep practicing those things and the more aware you become of the things not to do, it just becomes like a habit and becomes part of your daily routine. And it takes effort in the beginning, but it gets easier with time. And you don't have to say, I'm going to get rid of all 13 things, but just pick one. Pick one thing that you want to start working on and put all you have into it and and see what happens. So if I am going to do that for exercise, I join a gym. So now I've got a gym membership it encourages me to go. Or if I'm going to start running, I find a running mate. Uh, or I lay my clothes out at nighttime. What's the... Because I agree with you. However, I just think that we get distracted through a f- quick five-minute glance on Facebook. We see somebody having a holiday and then suddenly we spend 10 minutes pissed off because they're having a great time and look how good they look and my life's crap. Is there a, a cue? Is there a process? Is there a something that you have seen maybe someone you've worked with or someone that you've heard a story from that has a specific actionable thing that they could put into their day that is that trigger to take them back to that place? 
Well, one thing that has been helpful to some people that I work with is so they write a letter to themselves because you're right. Motivation goes out the window and it's easy on Sunday night to say, I'm going to go to the gym this week. But then when you get out of work on Monday and you think, oh, I'm tired and I just want to go home and watch TV, it's much easier to go home. So we come up with a plan. How do you plan ahead? And so I've had people that will write a list of the top 10 reasons why they should go to the gym right after work. And then they tape it to their steering wheel in their car. And then before they make a decision, before they make a decision about where to go right after work, they have to read the list. And when you read that list, it really causes you to say, yeah, I really need to go to the gym. So that even when you feel tired or you feel discouraged, that raises your logic to say, here are the 10 reasons why you should do it anyway, even when you feel that way. So this is one example, but there are lots of things you can do to say, how do I, how do I tackle one thing at a time? How do I increase the chances of success? And I, I think a lot of people think that when you're mentally strong, you get through anything at all costs, but you can also set yourself up for six, take little, little steps to say, okay, how do I make my life a little bit easier? And that doesn't mean you aren't mentally strong. It just means then your effort won't go into fighting with yourself. Your effort can go into your cause. Uh, Amy, just a couple of very quick final things before I hand you over to Robbo for the, the big, we've got you sufficiently warmed up. We'll hand you to Robbo for the big question, which is the big, the French for question. Do you practice gratitude? I do. I definitely incorporate gratitude into my daily life. Is there a process you use for that? Do you write it down? Is it a meditation? Is it just a thinking process? Is it a photo thing? How do you practice gratitude? I, you know, I talk to my husband every night about what I'm grateful for from the day. It's usually pretty easy because it's a conscious habit to identify the things that I'm grateful for. It might just be the the sun that I saw that day or uh, a conversation I had with somebody, but we make that a daily habit to always talk about the things we're grateful for. So are you going to go to your husband tonight and tell him how grateful you were for the conversation with us? <laughs> that will be on the list. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and in all reality, all how right. grateful am I that I get to that I get to talk to somebody in Australia about mental strength? I mean, how cool is that? <laughs> I've got one last thing before I hand you to Robbo. People people would look at you and say you are super successful with your work and what's happening now with the books and your media profile and so on. How does Amy measure success? H- how do you know you've been successful? I think for me, uh, knowing that I that I gave it my best, no matter what I'm doing, so that I'm using my time in a way that is helpful and that I'm able to, to make a contribution to the world. I feel like at the end of each day, if I can ask myself those questions, then I feel like I'm doing okay. And it makes it so I don't, uh, I'm not tempted to compare myself to other people or I'm not tempted to think I didn't do enough. As long as I know I was doing my best, then I'm okay with that. Do you audit yourself through the day, Amy, or is that something where you start the day with intention and then recount at the end of the day? Do you audit yourself through the day with that? Yeah, I start out you know, with an, a plan. I, I write lots of uh, publications. I do speaking engagements. I have a lot of different things. So two days usually don't look the same, but start out the day knowing that this is what I plan to do. And sometimes I stick to it. Sometimes things turn around. But as long as at the end of the day, I, when I sit down and ask myself, did you sharpen your skills? Did you do your best? If I can answer those questions, yes, then I know, okay, I, I met my definition of success for today. All right. Let's, uh, before we let you go, uh, Robbo, Nifty 90. Here we go. Here we go. Yeah. Robbo's Nifty 90. All right, Amy, here we go. Nifty 90 time. Let's start the clock. What's your favourite colour? Red. What's the last book you read? Uh, grit. Bacon or Oreos? What's your choice? Uh, Oreos. What's your favourite swear word? Uh, I rarely swear, so probably no swear words. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> What's your favourite outdoor activity? Uh, sailing. Presuming that your family are all okay, if your house was burning down, what three things would you grab before you ran out of the house? Uh, my laptop, um, a Bible, and... My cat. Nice. Three words that describe yourself. Uh, happy, um, short, and <laughs> funny. If you could get a plane ticket to anywhere in the world for free, where would you go and why? I've always wanted to go to the Shetland Islands <laughs> because I hear all the animals are miniature. Finish this sentence for me. The one thing that I need to remove from my life is... Too much time on social media. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the last movie you watched? Elf, I think. 
Okay. Uh, your favourite place to read a book? Outside in a hammock. All right. And the big question, you wake up in the morning, your mojo's not quite flowing, it's not happening today, you've had your breakfast and we're still not going, so you jump in the car or you're on the bus or the train on the way to work and you put your headphones on, what's the go-to song to get Amy's mojo going for the day? This girl is on this fire. Nice. <laughs> we haven't had that one, Gaz. There's another newie. Well, Amy, this has been terrific. We are very, very grateful for your time. I think the work you're doing is terrific. The way you present yourself and your message is just super. And um, we can't thank you enough for spending time with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been fun. Help us get the Mojo Radio Show on the iTunes What's Hot list. Hit up the Mojo Radio Show and leave a comment now. Oh, and please... You are such a disappointing pair. Be gentle with us. All right. To get us out of this week's show, we have a combo. A combo? Lesson of Rock is that book an, review. Is that an extra large combo? Extra large combo because it's mixed with a... Book review. The Mojo Pages. You may remember in a previous episode, in fact, I think in a couple of previous episodes, I have mentioned The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Do you remember that me talking about that book? I saw a copy of it lying around the studio last week. You were obviously mm. doing some research. Well, I've read it a second time uh, and I was halfway through it when somebody posted something online and then it came up in conversation during our shows and... The reason I'm doing it as a book review and a lesson of rock is because he talks about resistance. Now, resistance is the name he gives to procrastination or excuses or the justifications, all the reasons why we don't get stuff done. It's the stuff we know we should do, the stuff we ought to do, the stuff we want to do. But this thing called resistance finds all the justifiable reasons not to do it. Resistance is the key to the grey area. You know the area between you got every good intention, you know what the dream is as the end result, but somehow you step into the grey zone and you never get it done. And a lot of people, I guess, during the show have talked about that as being procrastination. And a lot of people struggle with procrastination. This book labels the enemy of creativity or getting stuff done as resistance and I like his approach to how he goes about facing this. It's usable, it's practical, and it lays out day-by-day, step-by-step processes that you can use. And he calls the person who fights resistance a professional. Preparation, it's about order, patience, endurance. It's a really good book. And the one thing that I think I take from this book that applies to our show is that we, we try and find experts in lots of different fields who can give us gold and the gold can be the stepping stones to move us in the fight against resistance. So it's a good book. It's a book about fighting the fear that is resistance. And I'm hoping people will get the, get a hold of this book. We've had a lot of experts talk about it, haven't we? We have. It's mentioned a lot in the show, isn't it? Mm. And the book is user-friendly, it's practical, it's powerful, it's tough, uh, and ultimately, if, if nothing else, take away the words of Amy Morin, become mentally strong, think about resistance, visualise resistance in your mind, and every time you come up with a bullshit excuse not to do something, that's resistance. And my advice is to get up, stand up, and fight against resistance. So with that, here's Bob Marley. Get up, stand up, don't give up the fight. Against resistance. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, stand up for your right. Get up, stand up, don't give up the fight. Preacher man, don't tell me heaven is all.
Produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.